Thank you, Stuart. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Good. Please, please wave a hand if you can't. Um, I'm going to begin with a commination upon Sir Michael Wilshaw, the Chief Inspector of Schools, because thanks to him and his afflictions or inflictions, I've only got a handwritten version of my talk, whereas normally I would have it typed up so that I could follow it effortlessly. However, I hope it'll work out. Um, I'm going to ask <coughs> from time to time for volunteers to read some of the poems. I've already conscripted Sam Gray for the first one. Um, Obviously, if you don't want to volunteer, please don't. But it would be very nice to hear a range of voices. All, all of these, except the first and the last, are war poems. Um, I've chosen the first and the last to provide a kind of frame. And as you'll see, it's almost a circular frame. Um, the war poems, of course, I'm sure you all know, are very easy to get hold of. There's this volume, of course, the collected poems... There's also a Faber edition in the same kind of cover of the War Poems Alone, which is also available on Kindle. And all of Sassoon's poems, in one way or another, are on the internet, uh, which must annoy the family no end, because, of course, he's still in copyright. But um, anyway, I'm going to begin with Before Day. And the background to this is no one would associate the exotic name of Siegfried Sassoon with rural Kent, but that's actually where he came from, a village called Matfield, which is between Tunbridge and Paddock Wood, sounds most unpromising, but to this day, it's an astonishingly beautiful, small, unspoilt village. It is, of course, now an exclusively middle-class village. It hasn't got the kind of genuine community that would have existed in Sassoon's time, but it is brilliantly unspoiled. I do recommend it for a visit to those of you who can get to that sort of place. You wouldn't believe you were within a few minutes' drive of the sprawling ugliness of Tunbridge. So it was in this background, almost exaggeratedly beautiful, almost too perfect, that Sassoon was brought up. It's a bit more or less like the background he describes in Fox Hunting Man, except that for reasons which I think are probably significant of his psychic state rather than anything else he, in The Fox Hunting Man he describes himself as an orphan brought up by an elderly aunt whereas he was of course and I expect you all know this one of three sons very close in age brought up by their mother Teresa Sassoon, née Thornycroft who was a, an artist and the daughter of a sculptor a woman sculptor as well as a male two sculptors in fact both parents in, in Fox Hunting Man, he leaves out all the artistic and literary background. But his mother, Teresa, of course, was artistic and gifted and very much encouraged that in her son. Siegfried, in that sense, was the odd one out. He was the middle child. The other two were scientists and engineers when they got older. And one gets the impression that they were probably a bit hearty, too. Um, so soon, although, of course, he had his hearty side, his fox hunting side was, I suppose, the sensitive, secretive one of the family. Those of you who've um, who managed to go to the exhibition in Cambridge a couple of years ago or have been to the archives since will have seen some of the childish drawings and writings he did for his mother. Very delicate, very neat and pretty, rather stunningly beautiful, in fact. And there is always this side to Sassoon, 
which I think is important in the poetry as well. This very meticulous, neat and tidy, rather quietly picturesque side. And the savage side, which comes out in the war poetry, I think is the binary opposite of that. All of these poems, except the last two, the first and last, as I said, are war poems, and both of them, at each end, are religious poems. The first one expresses a rather vague, mystical yearning. The last one is much more precisely um, theological, and specifically Catholic, and Sassoon, as you probably know, was received into the Roman Catholic Church late in life, and claimed always that it had met all his spiritual needs, fed all his spiritual hunger. So, Before Day is set in Matfield, written in 1908, long before any shadow of war on the horizon. He'd really never been away for very long. He didn't go away to school until he was already well into his teens. He'd never finished his degree at Cambridge. Basically, Matfield and the house really was his life until he experimented with going up to London in the summer of 1914 and found that also not quite to his taste. Anyway, Sam, could you begin, please, by reading Before Day to us? Before Day. <clears throat> Come in this hour to set my spirit free When earth is no more mine, no night goes out And stretching forth these arms I cannot be Lord of winged sunrise and dim architect when fieldwood boys, far off, with clack and shout, from orchards scare the birds in sudden rout, come, ere my heart grows cold and full of doubt, in the still summer dawns that waken me. When the first lark goes up to look for day, and morning glimmers out of dreams, come then out of the songless valleys, over grey, wide, misty lands, to bring me on my way. For I am lone, the dweller among men, hungered for what my heart shall never say. Thank you very much, Sam. I used to wonder why it was that people who would have been frightened off by Sassoon's anti-war attitudes nonetheless often proved to be lovers of his poetry. How did he make his way into poems of today, that very conservative anthology of Georgian and neo-Georgian poetry? which came out shortly after the outbreak of the Great War and went on being in print until after the end of the Second War. I think it's partly this sweetness of diction that you often find in Sassoon. Come in this hour, these open vowels, inviting someone to come, receptive, to set my spirit free when earth is no more mine, though night goes out. Those gentle dental sounds, the T's. It's probably largely unconscious, but Sassoon was a very fine craftsman, I think. Sometimes he took himself in the wrong direction. He was always rather apt, and Jean Moorcroft Wilson's pointed this out, rather apt quite unnecessarily to use antique poetic diction. For example, in line seven we've got, Air my heart grows cold or as my pupils would pronounce it, ear my heart grows cold. Um, a word that's extraordinarily resilient in the written language, but certainly never heard in my lifetime in the um, spoken language. But there is this gentle, limpid, 
perfectly adjusted diction, which makes the poems very recitable, very haunting. Well, Sassoon's life was curiously inactive, really, until August 1914. Brief spell at Marlborough, brief spell at Cambridge, brief unsuccessful attempt at leading a literary life in London, and then the war. And as probably most of you know, he tried initially to join up in the ranks in the yeomanry in order to be with his horse, at least that's one version of the story. Uh, Almost immediately, and this again is typical of Sassoon, managed to be hurt in an accident and out of action for months and rejoined as an officer. And it's from then on that we see him very much in his officer's role, always feeling responsible, always feeling slightly distant from the men, but passionately committed to them. I, purely by chance yesterday, when I was listening to the radio on the journey here, I heard Dr. Chantanou Das talking about friendship in the Great War, and he mentioned a, a PALS battalion whose mass grave had recently been excavated by French archaeologists and who'd been buried with their arms linked. And the officer, characteristically, lying just a little bit away from them, arms by his sides, so that even in death the distinction was observed. I think that's an admirable metaphor, really, for Sassoon. Close and yet distant. The Dragon and the Undying is a fairly early war poem. You'll find some obvious anthology pieces in this collection. I've also chosen some that don't often turn up in the anthologies, partly because I thought that would just cast a different light on Sassoon, since I'm sure most of you are very familiar with his more famous poems. Also, sometimes, the minor poems, or shall we say the ones that have never achieved anthology fame, sometimes tell us as much about him as the other poems do. I wonder whether I have a volunteer for The Dragon and the Undying. If I haven't... Oh, thank you very much, Michael. Thank you very much. As you'll see, this is another poem about what might have been. If we can compare Rupert Brooke's um, sonnet about the pouring out of the red sweet wine of youth and people losing, giving up their posterity. Here we've got the sense of lost poetry to hail the burning heavens they left unsung. So the speaker here is very conscious of the dead who are all around him and can be heard, but whose voices will never be heard articulately, who will never say the words they would have said. And yet it's not 
strictly speaking, a tragic poem. There's an almost celebratory tone about it. Though the slain are homeless as the breeze, and then their faces are the fair, unshrouded night, and planets are their eyes, their ageless dreams. It's a surprisingly original way of tackling the old trope about how if you, if you lose everything, you gain everything, how if you sacrifice everything, you win everything. Here the dead are all around, and their voices contribute somehow or other to the chorus of nature, although no one will actually hear their words. So we have chanting streams, dawn-lit trees, together with the rather more violent and horrific imagery, like the dragon's grappling coils, furious wings. So the impression in the end is that the dragon is thrashing around uselessly, but something more beautiful goes on, either in spite of the dragon or even in the end overcoming the dragon. Possibly the imagery owes something to Milton's Ode on the Morning of Christ's Nativity and the old dragon underground, which is the devil. The undying, then, are the dead. One of the points that Jean Moorcroft Wilson and other people have made in recent years is that there's no change of a sudden nature in Sassoon's attitude to the war. He doesn't go out innocent and then dramatically become disenchanted. These rather romantic poems go on alongside the much more deliberately earthy and shocking ones. Sassoon describes how he gradually devised a formula a very simple, a few very simple clear-cut stanzas with, as he put it, a knockout blow at the end. And we'll see that in some of the poems, but that doesn't happen all at once and it doesn't happen entirely. However, in Blighters, we've got an example of one of these binary opposites. Written while Sassoon was on leave and went to a show at the Liverpool Hippodrome. And this is one of the very early savage poems. I've put these poems in the order in which Sassoon himself placed them, in the selected poems, which isn't necessarily the order of composition, but presumably he had his own purpose in arranging them, so I've kept to it as far as I can. The house is crammed. Tear beyond tear they grin and cackle at the show, while prancing ranks of harlots shrill the chorus, drunk with din. We're sure the Kaiser loves the dear old tanks. I'd like to see a tank come down the stalls, lurching to ragtime tunes or home sweet home, and there'd be no more jokes in music halls to mock the riddled corpses round their home. Grin and cackle. Immediately we get the impression either of animals or of humans in their lowest forms. And the poor, tired chorus girls become prancing ranks of harlots. This, obviously, is somebody violently angry, violently disapproving, not attempting to be fair, furious at the savage animal excitement in the air, drunk with din. And, quite deliberately shocking, I'd like to see a tank come down the stalls. I suppose at the time when this was written, civilians would have had very little idea of what a tank looked like, apart perhaps from sketches in the London Illustrated News. The horror of seeing one advancing above you would be something that would be hard for them to imagine, and that, of course, is what Sassoon wants them to imagine. Lurching to ragtime tunes. One of the most famous lurchers in literature, of course, is Frankenstein's monster. 
perhaps that's there at the back here. This tank is something that human beings have created, which is bigger and viler even than they are. And there'd be no more jokes in music halls. Here we've got Sassoon in one of his very characteristic moods of alienation. I think it's pretty clear this wasn't caused by the war. It, there's a very powerful sense of solitude in Fox Hunting Man and in that early poem, Before Day, which you heard. And something I hope to develop another time is this theme of isolation. Here we've got the solitary, disapproving, angry figure watching humanity at its lowest and most vulgar and seething with contempt for it. But then, presumably at very much the same period, since Sassoon put these poems close together, we've got another much gentler, milder poem, which reflects the dragon and the undying, 200 years after. Can I ask anyone to volunteer to read this? And don't feel that you've got to be male. Thank you. <coughs> 200 years after. Trudging by Corby Ridge one winter's night, unless old hearsay memories tricked his sight, Along the pallid edge of the quiet sky, he watched a nosing lorry grinding on and straggling files of men. When these were gone, double limber and six mules went by, hauling the rations up through ruts and mud to trench lines digged two hundred years ago. And darkness hid them with a rainy scud, and soon he saw the village lights below. But when he told his tale, an old man said that he'd seen soldiers pass along that hill. Poor, silent things. They were the English dead who came to fight in France and got their fill. Thank you very much. Corby, of course, is on the, the Somme battlefield, which is where Sassoon was in 1916. He wasn't present on the first day of the Somme, or rather he was present but not in the lines. And he described it, watching it from the support lines, as a sunlit vision of hell. Here he's imagining 200 years into the future. Not, I think, imagining how long people would remember. We're coming up, as we all know, to the 100th anniversary. I'm not at all convinced that the 200th will be very much less noticed. I think this is going to be one of the most enduring legends in human culture. So he imagines 200 years later, or thinks even then that perhaps memory, legend, might just produce the impression of something that isn't really there, old hearsay memories, <clears throat> and describes a scene we're all familiar with. We've all seen that picture of the bent troops and the mule-drawn carts moving along the horizon. It's almost that that he's describing along the pallid edge of the quiet sky. There are some characteristically brutal Sassoonian images, the nosing lorry and ruts and mud, but the overall tone is much gentler than Blighter's. Again, we've got this very gentle dental tea sound, one winter's night, sight, quiet, and then rather less of it as the poem moves on, men and gone, striking a harsher consonantal note. And again, a characteristic bit of Sassoon poetic diction in line eight, digged rather than dug. 
Then darkness hid them with a rainy scud, and soon he saw the village lights below. <coughs> so we have the impression of a brief hallucination followed by a homecoming. But then there's a footnote, and the rather unfamiliar structure of the poem reinforces this. It is, of course, a sonnet, but not divided up in the usual sonnet fashion. Neither the Petrarchan 8-6 nor the Shakespearean 4-4-4-2 pattern. Here we've got uh, 10 and 4. But when he'd told his tale, an old man said that he'd seen soldiers pass along that hill. So these ghosts have been parading on and off for two centuries. Poor silent things. They were the English dead who came to fight in France and got their fill. Got their fill. Suggests that they got what they'd come for. Of course it's an ironic phrase too. They got more than they asked for, more than they wanted. But also it's a curiously peaceful resolution. The dead are still there, they're not forgotten, they're sometimes seen and people remember them with gratitude and pity. Poor silent things. So I think we make a mistake if we think of Sassoon just as the angry one. The angry poems are the ones that have become anthologised and are remembered, and I dare say Sassoon would have been reasonably happy with that, although of course he was never happy with the fact that he was thought of only as a war poet, still less with the fact that he was thought of as an adjunct to Wilfred Owen. There's a, some sympathetic jealousy there, I think. Um, One-Legged Man, of course, is a much more characteristically shocking poem with a knockout blow at the end, but it begins in the peaceful, tranquil, fruitful Weald of Kent. Propped on a stick, he viewed the August Weald, squat orchard trees and oasts with painted cowls, a homely, tangled hedge, a corn-stalked field and sound of barking dogs and farmyard fowls. And he'd come home again to find it more desirable than ever it was before. How right it seemed that he should reach the span of comfortable years allowed to man, splendid to eat and sleep and choose a wife, safe with his wound, a citizen of life. He hobbled blithely through the garden gate and thought, thank God they had to amputate. Obviously there's one of Sassoon's typical contrasts here between the peaceful Kentish scene and what the one-legged man has left behind him. Though the contrast's only implicit, what he's left behind him isn't described, but we can see the consequences of it. He's happy, he expects to live the span of comfortable years allowed to man, the threescore years and ten of the Bible, presumably. And there's cheerful, almost upper-class slang of the period, splendid to eat and sleep and choose a wife. And, of course, the, under, the undercurrent, the oxymoron safe with his wound and hobbled blithely. The landscape isn't purely romanticised, is it? It's comfortable, it's attractive, but it's squat orchard trees and a tangled hedge. This is real farming country. This is not just a, a pretty painting. It's something that offers life and continuity. And perhaps the fact that it's not an idealised landscape makes it all the more reassuring. I'm reminded of Edmund London's poem, um, The Lie. I saw the sunlit veil and the pastoral fairy tale. The sweet and bitter scent of the May drifted by. 
and never have I seen such a bright, bewildering green, but it looked like a lie, like a kindly meant lie. Obviously, the one-legged man here doesn't feel it's a lie. It's comfortable and homely enough and rugged enough for him to feel that this represents life and survival and a future. I'm conscious of the fact we probably shan't look at all these poems. The rear guard, often quoted, dated the Hindenburg Line, April 1917, and quite an interesting one, I feel, because it's also reproduced, not as a poem, but as a prose account, in Memoirs of an Infantry Officer. This is not just a poem of protest, it's a horror scene. It's a trip down to hell, basically. Underground, through deserted caves and passages, encountering a dead man who is either friend or enemy. Obviously, in that sense, it prefigures Sassoon's, uh, sorry, Owen's strange meeting. It also looks back, I suppose, to Dante and even Virgil, tra- travelling into the underworld. Can we have an offer to read this one? Thank you very much. Uh, the real world <coughs> in Hindenburg Line, April 1917. Groping along the tunnel, step by step, he winked his prying torch with catching glare from side to side and sniffed the unwholesome air. Tins, boxes, bottles, shapes too vague to know, a mirror smashed, the mattress from a bed. And he, exploring fifty feet below the rosy gloom of battle overhead. Tripping, he grabbed the wall, saw someone lie humped at his feet, half hidden by a rug, and stooped to give the sleeper's arm a tug. I'm looking for headquarters. No reply. God blast your neck. For days he had no sleep. Get up and guide me through this stinking place. Savage, he picked a soft, unanswering heat and flashed his beam across the livid face, terribly glaring up, whose eyes yet wore agony dying hard ten days before, and fists of fingers clutched a blackening wound. Alone, he staggered on until he found Dawn's ghost that filtered down a shafted stair to the days, muttering creatures underground, who hear the boom of shells in muffled sound. At last, with sweat of horror in his hair, he climbed through darkness to the twilight air, unloading hell behind him, step by step. Thank you very much. A nightmare vision, beginning and ending with step by step. Someone who's finding his way merely from second to second, never knowing what he's going to step on. And very characteristically, the speaker is alienated even from himself. For instance, in the second line, he talks about his prying torch. He feels himself to be a spy underground in this kingdom of the dead. And everything around him is broken or distorted. 
a mirror smashed. And yet, even here, a characteristically pretty touch, the rosy gloom of battle over the head. Again, an impossible paradox, that the beauty, beautiful colour of the light generated by the battle, seen only through dust and fog and shadows. He trips over somebody he assumes to be a sleeper, and we get a characteristically Sassoonian exchange. I'm looking for headquarters. No reply. God, blast your neck. Get up and guide me through this stinking place. But in the middle, there's this polite justification. He wouldn't speak like this but for the fact that for days he'd had no sleep. Savage, Sassoon's own word about himself. He kicked a soft, unanswering heap and reveals the livid face of a dead soldier. Terribly glaring up, fists of fingers clutched a blackening wound. Echoes there of Graves' poem, Dead Bush. Alone he staggered on. So the figure is savage, unjustifiably violent, but also in the last throes of disintegration himself, near to collapse, and finds at last not a human ghost, but the ghost of dawn, the chance of a staircase and escaping upstairs. But what is escaping upstairs to? Not safety, but battle. At last, with sweat of horror in his hair, he climbed through darkness to the twilight air, not up into the light, just into the double state of twilight, unloading hell behind him, step by step. Very conscious reference to journeys into the underworld. And this is Sassoon's prose account of it. The tunnel was a few inches higher than a tall man walking upright. It was fitted with bunks and recessed rooms. In places it was crowded with men of various units, but there were long intervals of unwholesome-smelling solitude. Prying my way along with an electric torch, I glimpsed an assortment of vague shapes, boxes, tins, fragments of broken furniture and frowsy mattresses. It seemed a long way to headquarters, and the tunnel was memorable, but not fortifying to a fatigued explorer who hadn't slept for more than an hour at a stretch or taken his clothes off since last Tuesday. Once, when I tripped and recovered myself by grabbing the wall, my tentative patch of brightness revealed somebody half-hidden under a blanket. Not a very clever spot, I thought, to be taking a nap. I stooped to shake him by the shoulder. He refused to wake up, so I gave him a kick. God blast you, where's battalion headquarters? My nerves were on edge. And what right had he to be having a good sleep when I never seemed to get five minutes rest? Then my beam settled on the livid face of a dead German whose fingers still clutched the blackened gash of his neck. Stumbling on, I could only mutter to myself that this was really a bit too thick. That, however, was an exaggeration. There is nothing remarkable about a dead body in a European war or a squashed beetle in a cellar. Now, Sassoon can be a master of prose, but to me that's a sad declension from the poem. A lot of the same Lexis is used, broken, prying, unwholesome, <coughs> God blast you. All the same, the note of sarcasm I find irritating and inappropriate. Quite what Sassoon thought he was doing, I'm not sure. Possibly trying to de himself. 
because he presents himself in the prose account as irritable, overtired, prone to exaggeration, but obviously asks you to understand. Sassoon, I think, sometimes does shoot himself in the foot, um, particularly when revisiting old experiences and trying to rearrange them. But by direct contrast with the rear guard, we've got Dreamers, the next poem in your handout. Now, this one was published in the Hydra, which was the magazine at Craig Lockett, um, after Sassoon had made his protest against the war and agreed finally, although he wasn't technically suffering from shell shock, to be sent to Craig Lockett, a hospital for shell-shocked officers. So this was presumably written at Craig Lockett or not very long before. It must, however, have been... Well, no, not must. It's likely to have been written after Repression of War Experience, which is the next one. So I'm going to, just for once, ask you to skip forward and then we'll skip backwards. So can we look at page um, 11, which is um, two pages on in your handouts, I think. Can you tell me when you found it? We're looking for dreamers and repression of war experience. One page, one page on, yes. sorry. <coughs> right, it would be very nice if we had an offer to read this one. Thank you very much. Which one are we going for? Repression of war experience, first of all. Of course it will be, thank you very much. Now light the candles. One, two, there's a mop. What silly beggars they are to blunder in and scorch their wings with glory, liquid flame. No, no, not that. It's bad to think of war when thoughts you've gagged all day come back to scare you and it's been proved that soldiers don't go mad unless they lose control of ugly thoughts that drive them out to jabber among the trees. Now light your pipe. Look what a steady hand. Draw a deep breath. Stop thinking. Count 15, and you're as right as rain. Why won't it rain? I wish there'd be a thunderstorm tonight, with buckets full of water to sluice the dark and make the roses hang their dripping heads. Books, what a jolly company they are, standing so quiet and patient on their shelves, dressed in dim brown and black and white and green and every kind of colour. Which will you read? Come on, oh, do read something, they're so wise. I tell you all the wisdom of the world is waiting for you on those shelves, and yet you sit and gnaw your nails and let your pipe out and listen to the silence. On the ceiling there's one big dizzy moth that bumps and flutters, and in the breathless air outside the house the garden waits for something that delays. There must be crowds of ghosts among the trees, not people killed in battle. They're in France, but horrible shapes in shrouds, old men who died slow, natural deaths, old men with ugly souls, 
who wore their bodies out with nasty sins. You're quiet and peaceful, summering safe at home. You'd never think there was a bloody war on. Oh yes, you would. Why, you can hear the guns. Hark, thud, thud, thud. Quite soft, they never cease, those whispering guns. Oh Christ, I want to go out and screech at them to stop. I'm going crazy. I'm going stark staring mad because of the guns. Thank you so much. The reason I've broken the sequence here and confused everybody by telling them to skip a page is that we've got a, an article in the forthcoming issue of Siegfried's Journal. Do join the Siegfried Sassoon Fellowship and then you'll get a copy of it. Um, an article by Dr Luke Thurston of Aberystwyth University who places it this poem during the period when Sassoon had sent his letter of protest to his commanding officer and was waiting to hear and to find out what would happen to him. So he had no idea, really, what was going to happen to him. As we know, in the end, nothing very much did happen to him. He allowed himself to be persuaded to be sent to the Shellshock Hospital. When his protest was read out in the House of Commons, the House of Commons was told that um, everything was in hand and that he was receiving treatment. But at this stage, he was at home in Wearley and waiting to find out what would happen. And it's clearly an agitated poem, isn't it? it it's a very well-controlled, crafted poem, but it's much less traditional in its... I suppose its metrical patterns. It, its music is much less traditional than most of Sassoon's war poetry. It's almost a modernist poem, not quite, but a great deal of enjambement, a great deal of one line running into another very free variation on a basic iambic pattern. Um, broken lines, rhetorical questions, general sense of fragmentation. And the speaker is both I and you. Some of it's in the vocative. Now light the candles. Thoughts you've gagged all day come back to scare you. Now light your pipe. And then, about ten lines in, shifting to the first person. I wish there'd be a thunderstorm tonight. And then back again to the vocative about line 15. Oh, do read something. A man talking to himself. Not clearly somebody who is actually stark staring mad, according to the last line, but somebody who feels... He's having to hang on to his reason. Probably a psychiatrist would say, if you feel like that, then you're not in any danger of going mad. But somebody dramatising a sense of falling apart. So in the background, there's this peaceful country scene. Light the candles. Roses out in the gardens. A big dizzy moth that bumps and flutters. But... The garden waits for something that delays. Something's going to happen. Something's going to arrive. It could almost be the setting for a ghost story. And indeed, there must be crowds of ghosts among the trees. Not people killed in battle, they're in France. But horrible shapes in shrouds. So the peaceful, beautiful scene is infested, not with the ghosts of dead soldiers who would be safe, who would be <coughs> companions, but with the ordinary dead. 
people who lived a long time and wore their bodies out with nasty sins. Almost a child's word, that, nasty sins. And then again addressing himself, you're quiet and peaceful, summering safe at home. Summering. Sounds like taking a holiday, although historically it was just a period of, of leave. More or less unauthorised leave, waiting to find out what was going to happen to him. And then the sound of the guns. Think also about Sassoon's own poem, The Deathbed, which we haven't got here, which ends with, then far away, the thudding of the guns. And of course it's historical fact that in Kent you could often hear the guns in France if the wind was in the right direction. But we don't know here whether the guns can really be heard or whether they can just be heard during the, in the speaker's brain. I'm going stark staring mad because of the guns. How many stresses in that line? Probably about seven or eight. An insistent rhythm. Compared with which Dreamers, which was our jumping off point, is a very traditional sweet-sounding poem, almost harking back, not quite, but almost harking back to those early poems, talking about clean beds and wives, fire-lit homes, compared with foul dugouts gnawed by rats. But the end of the poem is a series of domestic images, not particularly rural images, suburban images dreaming of things they did with balls and bats and mocked by hopeless longing to regain bank holidays and picture shows and spats and going to the office in the train. The conjunction string and, and, and adds to the childlike tone of it, increases the pathos, I think. These soldiers are homesick for such banal things and nothing matters more to them at that moment than the thought of those things for which their longing is hopeless. They will never regain them. I'm conscious of the fact that we're running out of time and that I must leave some time for questions, so I'm going to ask you to gallop on ahead and to look at... I think I'm going to leave Aftermath, which is, I suppose, Sassoon's most obviously famous post-war poem. I'm going to ask you to look instead at To Leonid Massine in Cleopatra, which is the one immediately before it. And it runs over two pages. It's the fourth poem from the end. Have people found it? Yes. Good. Um, Massine was the principal male dancer of the Ballet Russe after Nijinsky and Diaghilev had fallen out. And Massine was famous, I think, for the way in which he leapt. Like Nijinsky, he was an acrobatic dancer. And the Russian Ballet certainly visited London in the autumn of 1918. I presume that's where Sassoon saw it. And we've got a situation which I imagine a lot of us have experienced in one context or another, watching some work of art being unfolded but not being able to stop thinking about something else. O beauty doomed and perfect for an hour, leaping along the verge of death and night, you show me dauntless youth that went to fight four long years past, discovering pride and power. You die but in our dreams, who watch you fall, knowing that tomorrow you will dance again. 
but not to ebbing music were they slain, who sleep in ruined graves beyond recall, who, following phantom glory, friend and foe, <coughs> into the darkness that was war must go, blind, banished from desire. O mortal heart, be still. You have drained the cup, you have played your part. So Sassoon finding himself unexpectedly alive at the end of the war, a contingency that I think can hardly have occurred to him. It was the thought that he was safe while his men were in danger that drove him back to France after his protest. And in Siegfried's Journey, which is the last of his purely autobiographical volumes, he says he realised with surprise at some point around August 1918 that he was, after all, going to survive. And here the speaker is watching this magnificent dancer leaping along the verge of death and night, where death and night and life are abutting on each other, but the dancer never in reality wanders into the realm of death and night. He dies on stage, but we know that tomorrow you will dance again, which leads inevitably to those who won't. But not to ebbing music were they slain, who sleep in ruined graves beyond recall. And of course at this point, even the graveyards were ruined, not the consoling cemeteries we're familiar with today, with their plants and their white headstones, but wrecked expanses of mud with smashed crosses. Ebbing music, music that's dying away, that's retreating, receding, like everything else. Who, following phantom glory, what a lot of images of ghosts there are in these poems. Friend and foe, into the darkness that was war must go. And Sassoon here seems to be assuming that only those who are themselves haunted will remember. Blind, banished from desire, as though the ability to feel desire were the most important sign of living. O oh, mortal heart, be still. You have drained the cup. You have played your part. Consoling himself, not very effectively perhaps, giving himself permission not to spend a lifetime grieving. You have drained the cup. Well, an obvious biblical reference there, the Garden of Gethsemane, which is an image Kipling also used of the, of the Great War. And moving on to another biblical poem, this is the last but one, Ancient History. This is from Sassoon's immediately post-war collection, Picture Show. Adam, a brown old vulture in the rain, shivered below his wind-whipped olive trees. Huddling sharp chin on scarred and scraggy knees, he moaned and mumbled to his darkening brain. He was the grandest of them all, was Cain. A lion led in the hills that none could tire, swift as a stag, a stallion of the plain, hungry and fierce with deeds of huge desire. Grimly he thought of Abel, soft and fair a lover with disaster in his face and scarlet blossoms <clears throat> twisted in bright air. Afraid to fight. Was murder more disgrace? God always hated Cain. He bowed his head. The gaunt, wild man whose lovely sons were dead. Adam here, not a sympathetic character. Wizened, old, embittered. Not 
in the right direction, however. God always hated Cain, so our biblical sympathies are inverted. Cain was the one who fought. Cain was destroyed. Abel was afraid to fight. Abel was destroyed. But Cain was clearly the favourite. And again, that sense that desire is something in itself to be desired. Hungry and fierce with deeds of huge desire. So Adam is the avatar of an embittered post-war parent who still isn't putting the blame in the right place. I've taken you on a terrific gallop through these. I'm sorry, I'm always saying to my pupils, pace yourselves, don't rush at the end. And of course it always happens. Please could I ask somebody to round us off by reading a prayer at Pentecost, a poem written 40 years after all the others. Yes, thank you. Master musician, life I have heard you, laboring in litanies of good toward you. Be notless now, our dear Lord has done. Spirit who speaks by silences, remake me, to light of unresistant faith, awaken me, that we resolve as requiem by the Lord. Thank you very much, Deb. And I so apologise, there is only one typing mistake in this, and of course it would be in the last poem. Late. And it would be the poem that I could <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Labouring in litanies of love to word you. I wonder what it was. Of course. I'm so sorry. Litanies of love. Yes. Yes. So, again, this brings us back to Sassoon's subtle sound patterning, doesn't it? Life, labouring, litanies, love. Gentle, caressing sounds. This is a poem that's very hard to obtain. For some reason, Sassoon never let his religious poems be added to the collected poems. Uh, Normally, you have to buy extremely expensive privately printed books to get this one, so I'm very glad that it's now found its way onto the internet, and there's a link below. (laughs) I have overheard you, but be noteless now. Our duologue is done. No more listening for sounds, as we've had all through these poems, from the very first one, waiting for a voice. Now the speaker has reached such a a sense of peace, such a sense of consummation and union, that there's no more need for talking, no more need for listening. Spirit who speaks by silences remake me, that with resolved requiem I be one. And I think there's a word play on that very last word, one as in united and singular, but one also as in one over, conquered. After so much fighting, peace. After so many words, silence. Thank you all very much. I think I've left you about two minutes for for questions.